No reason to adjust your volume. No reason to check your calendar. It's here. It's finally here. Okay, maybe finally is a strong word. Maybe it's not even the right word. But here, now that's a great word. Because if you've been waiting for a weekly podcast from DC Comics News that boldly picks the top five books you should be reading each and every week, well, that wait is over because the DC Comics News Spinner Rack is here and it's live. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Seth Singleton. I'm a reviewer for DC Comics News. And if you've heard my voice before, there's a chance you caught me chiming in on a topic or two as a member of the DC Comics News podcast over the past few episodes. If you don't recognize my voice, don't worry. If you stick around week after week for the spinner rack, you'll get used to it. You might even come to recognize it. So, since there's a first time for everything, this is the first episode of the Spinner Rack, which perhaps leads us to an obvious question for anyone not familiar with just what a Spinner Rack is or what it does. For me personally, a Spinner Rack was a childhood symbol of escape. It was this wire metal rack that had two or three rows of shelves all linked to a center column and pivoting rather creakily. I mean, honestly, the description that comes to mind is rickety, rackety, wobbly, squeaky display for comic books. And that's what a spinner rack was. At the top was a metal sign that said comics, five cents. It was peeling, and it was one of three that I could find in the small town where I grew up. One was at the Long's Drugs, the other at the Payless Drugs, and the third and most familiar would be at the little town newspaper that was called Dick's Newsstand. Dick's Newsstand was a place I could always count on, on the way to and from an errand, school, the library... It was the place to stop to see what was new on the rack. And with a quick spin and that oh-so-familiar wrenching, squeaking, sometimes grinding sound of metal twisting, all for my delight, my friends and I could see just what was new in the adventures of all of our favorite comic book characters. It also meant that at a place like the local pharmacies, I could find a little bit of relief or escape from that interminable amount of time when mom, dad, me, or sis had to wait for a prescription. That 20, 30, 45 minute window could only be filled with so much wandering down the games or toys aisle. Eventually, I touched too much or picked up too many things, and then the no touching rule would come into play. I could pick up the books and magazines down the book and magazine aisle, but most of those were older than I was. But if I searched hard enough, if I remembered where to go, and made sure to keep my eyes looking up, 
I would find that metal Christmas tree, always giving 365 days a year. And it was a place that I knew magic and impossibility would exist. From the moment I opened a cover of the comic book and began reading until the moment that either I closed it, satisfied to have snuck in a full story, or when I heard my name being yelled because I hadn't checked back in, I had actually disappeared without telling anyone where I was going, or someone had been calling my name more than once. But I, so sucked into the bright colors and the fantastic story, and sometimes the fantastic environments where the story took place, and the great powerful lines that seemed to shout at me that these were things I should know and that there were real threats on the line, and it was important for me to read them. But the voice calling my name didn't agree, and I would in those moments have to detach and let go of that world of magic and return to the mundane and the existence of prescriptions and medicine and long waits and lines and not being able to do what I want. But every time I found a spinner rack, every time I stumbled upon that collection of comics, I knew That for as long as it lasted, I could lose myself in the wonder and the mastery and the magic and the mystery. And with that spirit in mind, DC Comics News is proud to bring you its very own Spinnerack. A selection of the top five comics from the week, reviewed by members of the DC Comics News staff, and available to read at dccomicsnews.com. Now, I'm going to give a few disclaimers about the list. I have not been reading the full series for each of these books. Some are books that I've never read before. Others I never even heard of before they appeared in this list. Some were new enough that I only went back an issue or two, and then I was caught up. And that was helpful. Because I felt like I was still jumping on at the beginning of, well, a journey whose destination I still didn't know. But there were other books that were so far along that it would have been impossible for me to go back and read all the preceding issues, then read the current issue, and then try and get my review to you. And that's something I'm okay with. I'm hoping you will too. And with that in mind, I read each of these books as a standalone issue. I tried not to consider the relevance of the current story in its relationship to a longer storyline. And then sometimes I did. And that is just me being human. I'm sure that there are also some other ways that I'm not applying a scientific method or other standard. But it's also the first episode, so I'm going to learn with you. And I'm hoping that your responses for me will help us work together to make this a great weekly experience that pulls us out of the mundane and into the world of the magic and the mystery of the comics that we experienced, either as kids or kids at heart. So, without any further ado, let's get started with the Spinner Rack. My first selection for this week is American Carnage, number 5. You can find the review by Sean Blumenshine on our review page. The story was written by Brian Hill and features art by... Leandro Fernandez, and a cover by Ben Oliver. And it's that cover that struck me right off the bat. There's our main character, Richard, 
lying down in the space or along the jagged line where the shoreline meets the final strains of a wave as it stretches out onto the sand before receding back into the ocean. Richard's lying there while seagulls have gathered around him. And he appears that same way on the opening page. And it's only after a few panels that he drags bloody fingers across the sand and then heaves himself up with a gasp of air, only to find the man he's been working for standing next to a stranger wearing a Barack Obama mask. Now there's a lot going on in American Carnage. Across town at the same time, a powerful figure named Wynne Morgan is being interviewed by FBI agent Curry. She's got questions about the death of Agent Watson and if there's a connection to a white nationalist movement that may or may not be directly tied to Wynne Morgan. Back at the beach, it's Richard who's learning from his new boss that the apparent shotgun blast he received at the end of last issue was actually rock salt and that while he's currently stinging in pain from the mixture of the ammo, his wounds, and what I can only imagine is a terrible sensation when salt water strikes it, he's also being repeatedly beaten by the stranger in the Barack Obama mask. Richard's broken at this point and it's here that I find myself creating an attachment to this character who even through the brief descriptions provided in this issue, has not been a positive reflection of a mixed-race heritage. He's a disgraced FBI agent, and his only shot at redemption is to do a series of absolutely horrible things for this one person who says they're willing to give him a shot, but may or may not just as easily be using him for one final mission before just like any almost broken tool, after the job's done, he's discarded to the uh, recycle pile and replaced with something better or better suited. So how does a character facing that kind of a challenge actually pick themselves up or drag themselves up? That's what's keeping me hanging on right now, and that's what really caught my attention as I was reading American Carnage because the layers from this point only become more condensed and, if it's possible, more entangled. Richard's got a very strange and, I'd say, strained relationship with Wynne Morgan's daughter, Jennifer. And he also has a part of himself that has to deal with the evil he's willing to consider in order to keep his benefactor happy. His one chance to prove that he's willing to do anything, not only for his benefactor, but on the behalf of Agent Curry in pursuing the real cause and the real culprits behind the death of Agent Watson, Richard breaks into the home of one suspect and, after terrorizing the family, has an opportunity to simply end the life of the man who's been accused. But something pulls him back. Maybe it's his humanity, maybe it's a recognition of certain details, which is the excuse he provides to Agent Curry when he's later on the phone with her, 
explaining that he did not kill this suspect and that while this person might have blood on their hands and may be guilty of an involvement in Agent Watson's death, the fact that he's not the only one is what stays Richard's hand. And it was this added layer of humanity, this desire on the part of someone who is already viewed by everyone else as being a disgrace, who's fighting to demonstrate that despite what others might believe, that's not who he is. And that he has, in these moments, the opportunity to make that change with as many steps or efforts as possible. I don't think that's something I could do, but I'm impressed by Richard's ability to do it. And the feeling that he's facing something he doesn't fully understand is echoed in the final pages by Agent Curry, who says that the powers he's up against are phenomenal. And I agree. And I don't know how much of his humanity Richard will be able to keep. But I'm going to come back for the next issue to see just how much further he's being tested and to what lengths he's going to have to go in order to try and redeem himself in the eyes of people who think he's most likely beyond hope. It's great storytelling. It's really beautiful imagery. Lush, rich, and yet darkened by this heavy tint that implies that there's a shadow over everything and that even in the brightest of days there's a darkness whether it's completely tangible or a bit more imperceptible there are those who are aware of it and in the case of Richard putting their lives on the line in order to do something about it to see what another opinion is don't forget to check out the review by Sean Blumenshine of American Carnage Issue number five at DC Comics News. And that rolls us right into Electric Warriors number five. Story by Steve Orlando. Art and cover by Travel Foreman. Even though it's issue number five, this is another one that I've just jumped right into. And so much is going on that I really just enjoyed flipping from page to page trying to keep up. In a nutshell, it's the future. The Earth is recovering from a great cataclysm, something that feels oddly familiar and yet at the same time completely different, and for that reason alone, I'm intrigued. In this current future setting, all of the planets who agree to the current arrangement participate in intergalactic diplomacy by sending an ambassador from their planet to fight on their behalf for the rights, access to properties, trades, better negotiation on deals. The list probably goes on and on, and I think what's great just from the get-go is that the depths and layers available here are completely foreign and that means that plumbing them is only going to lead to potentially new exciting and original stories concepts characters again much like the details that are probably contained within these arrangements the potential for this rather unknown future is just as rich of course, 
We're all from the planet Earth, so the focus of this story is on the two champions of Earth. And that already sets the Earth apart, because it's not like other planets that are limited to one. Earth instead has its two champions, but they share this thing called an electric seed. And I'm still learning exactly what that is, but I, I think at some point I'll figure it out. Earth's two champions, Deep Dweller and Warcry, aren't exactly allies, but they need each other. And at this point in the story, they need each other more than they ever could have thought. They've uncovered a plot that reveals that not only is the belief that these games and contests maintain diplomacy, but that they're actually for the good and benefit of each planet. While that might be a very mild peripheral fringe benefit, where this really comes into play is when the warriors, contestants, ambassadors, perish in combat because a secret group known as the Gilded have rights and access to the corpses. And what they do with them, it's just disgusting. I mean, essentially, they're taking these dead bodies and they're using them for their own purposes without revealing that the whole purpose of this contest is to keep supplying fresh corpses for their own nefarious needs. The lens focuses here because Warcry, Deep Dweller, and a small group of ambassadors and warriors, electric warriors in this case, just lost one of their own, otherwise known as Inceptor, to combat, or what appeared to be combat, to all those who were viewing. What this small group knows to be the truth is that Inceptor died because, well, there was a hit placed, and the assassination was meant to look like a result of combat and not the result of an execution. But the group is facing its own challenges because, much like the Gilded, its members have their secrets too. Up until this point, Warcry has been a bit of a surprise. One, because he's part of two champions from Earth, Two, because he carries a rare and very significant relic, which is the, in this timeline, ancient cape of the legendary superhero Superman. Just as any other relic might, it brings a certain amount of prestige, and that has kept Warcry, to an extent, out of the light of public scrutiny or at least from close examination, which is why when the group challenges the organizers of the games, they're met with the resistance of a somewhat timeless guardian known as the Firestorm. But it's not the Firestorm I remember. This one is green and malevolent and angry. And this Firestorm faces off against Deep Dweller, who splits the two personalities that are used to forge Firestorm, and it reveals that Lex Luthor was bound with the other half, and that it's Luthor who in this moment has the secret that Warcry has been trying to keep all his own, which is that Warcry actually stole the opportunity to be Earth's ambassador and defender. 
and the person he stole it from was his very own brother. Sibling rivalries are always difficult, and I feel that this just adds a layer that is, well, that's not going to go away anytime soon. And the appearance of Warcry's brother, and the recognition that this will all have to continue and the next issue, I think provides me with a little bit of support in my claim. But don't forget to check out the review by our very own Ari Bard at DC Comics News to read more about Electric Warriors number 5. Well, dear listener, if you were hoping that the mystery and secrets and lies from Electric Warriors would be replaced by something else, I'm afraid that the rabbit hole only spirals deeper and deeper. And where it leads us to is Lucifer number six. This was a great story. Dan Waters doing the writing, art by Max Fiumara and Sebastian Fiumara, with this absolutely gorgeous cover by Tiffany Terrell. And I'll be honest, I'm dropped right in the middle of complete confusion. I start with the cover, which is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's just a beautiful image. This dark, shadowy character who I believe is named Sikorax or Sikorax. I like Sikorax. But this figure with these dark, ominous eyes and an expression that says that there are secrets that she knows that no one else ever will. Carrying a emaciated Lucifer, bearded, straggly red hair, wearing white pants and a white shirt or jacket that is open and exposing a very vulnerable torso. And on the first page, we move into a wasteland, a desert climate. Sikorax walking along, Lucifer tripping, stumbling, and falling behind. And her lack of concern feels not only personal, but forced. She points out that she's already stitched him up once before. I'm not sure why, but now I'm intrigued to go back and learn. And it's also explained that some of his senses are returning, and there's a feeling that they weren't always there. And that this is a new adjustment that's going to require a little time. And it leads me to think that the vulnerability from the cover is more than just an act of symbolism. When we meet Robert Johnson, whose story I've heard told since I was a child, famed legendary guitarist and aspiring singer who made a deal with the devil at a legendary place known as the Crossroads. But like any deal with the devil, the benefit always goes to the one offering the deal, rarely to the one who agrees to making it. Robert Johnson, dead at 27, fires a Molotov cocktail, sets Lucifer on fire, and a frenzy occurs. Maddened, angry creatures, people who have been twisted and depraved through an existence defined by anyone who associates the devil with the place where he lives as hell. Some of the characters are examples of the strife that has existed throughout the ages, and others point to just how many powerful and influential people were said to have befriended or struck a bargain with the devil. An example is the poet William Blake, who forlornly 
states that he offered nothing but kindness, and that was met each time with nothing but cruelty from this Prince of the Morning, or Morning Star, as he's so well known. And it's right about now that I noticed that everything about the environment, the way the light and shadows play across people's faces and the landscape, is a varying shade of red, and then amber, and then maroon, and then a pale light. And just as this world appears to be crumbling and falling apart around them. Lucifer and Sikorax share a story. And it's the story of how they first met. A story of two people telling their versions of an experience that they were both a part of and clearly remember far differently. And at this time, Sikorax was a witch. And as she states, it's something that people said when they believed she couldn't hear. She was extremely powerful, and she had traveled the world and experienced enough that the world had become something that was no longer new. And it turns out that it's not just the jaded, I've seen it all before, that has made the world seem pale by comparison, but it's the fact that Sikorax always held a secret place in her heart for the moon. And she believed that it was a, a shared feeling. And so one night, she decided that she would go out to the sand and that she would use her magic to build a bridge and reach up and make her way to her unrequited love, potential lover, but more importantly, that thing that had always been so far out of reach. And now she was reaching for it finally able to leave behind all of the things she no longer wanted. If only the earth would let her. But the earth is jealous and is unwilling to give up one of its own children. And at a final moment, when Sikorax needs the moon the most, he lets her go and promises to find another way. And in that moment, she's betrayed. And she tells not only herself, but the listener and the reader that she could never love someone whose love or intention could be so easily cowed, so easily diminished or inhibited. And that's when she meets Lucifer, and she finds someone who she believes is better than the lover she's just lost. And together they become one, and their union brings about her pregnancy. And when Lucifer returns, it's to tell her that she has to come to hell with him because he is afraid that his father won't allow their child to live. And once again, Sikorax is betrayed. She finds herself completely despondent at the thought that this powerful figure who had seemed so opposite to the moon was actually just as weak, just as powerless. And she refuses him, which is something that Lucifer doesn't take well, and he curses her to a horrible land where she gives birth to their son. And the seed of possibility that's brought about through his existence suggests that this is the introduction of the Antichrist as he's come to be known in stories from books like the Bible. And it's at the end of that story that Sikorax is reunited with her lost son. And she and Lucifer come to the human plane of Earth. But just because they've survived one trial doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. And Lucifer alludes to the fact that heaven has been watching, and generally, that they like to be responsible.
for things like resurrections. I personally think it's really hard to tell an original story about a character from one of the first and oldest stories. I like watching Lucifer because he's escaping the suffering that he's been experiencing, not healing, and suffers, just for a moment, the experience of being a prisoner of his own lies. Lucifer facing down the souls he is condemned, or trying to set him on fire, is enjoyable because he never loses that brash arrogance that leads him to be so unforgiving and always ready with a quick retort that immediately places the blame squarely on the shoulders of the damned, or at least equally on the shoulders of himself and the damned. I also enjoyed this opportunity to step inside the mind of a woman who not only fell in love with Lucifer, but shares a relationship with him as a parent. And that in no way is she someone who is weak or cowed by his power, but is actually strident and defiant and unwilling to defer to him the way the rest of humanity and history have. I'm also going to come back to the colors because those beautiful red hues of the wasteland when Lucifer is suffering and running are contrasted beautifully by the soft green tint that overlays the storytelling about their first meeting and the moments leading up to the birth of their child. I feel that those two colors begin to blend and by the final pages those stories have come together in a way that feels complete and intentional. And I thought it was a really interesting way to provide as much of a background to this main story as the two minor stories, which you'll get to experience when you read it, play their parts in representing the other elements, the larger scale that is going on outside of this very close and intimate story between Lucifer and Sikorax. Time for a fun one. I was actually lucky enough to score this review. So when you do visit DC Comics News, look for the review on Lucifer, issue number six, by yours truly. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. More importantly, I am interested in hearing what you have to say. But before I can hear what you have to say, I have to finish up with our spinner rack. We've only got two issues left to go. And I'm going to move us right into our next one with Naomi. Issue number three, as reviewed by our very own Carl Bryan. The story by David F. Walker and Brian Michael Bendis is beautifully complemented by the art from Jamal Campbell, who also created the gorgeous cover. I'm going to start out with a little tidbit I caught from the DC Comics News podcast. And if you haven't heard it, I highly recommend subscribing so you can keep up. But one of our reviewers, Brad Felicki, mentioned that he has heard it suggested by Brian Michael Bendis, and this was at a con, that Naomi is part of a very big mystery or secret, currently at works in the DC Universe. And this limited run series 
which I believe will be ending sometime around June or July, is going to unpack some really powerful and potentially game-changing revelations about the DC Universe and what its future, and maybe its past, have really all been about. But in this issue, I didn't know any of that. All I knew is that there was this young girl staring up at a giant man named D in his mechanic shop. And she was bullheaded and stubborn and asking questions about how he knows about when she was adopted and why has he been keeping tabs on her and what is he not telling her. Now D is gigantic, bald, tattooed, and of course he's wearing a black tank top which, by comparison to his muscles, is so tiny that all it can do is show off his giant muscles because he's just so big and massive. But this isn't some big, massive, mean man. This is a heartbroken, lonely, despondent man who's not even a human man. Turns out he is a Thanagarian, and he was part of a super-secret strike force. And he was on a team led by a woman named, I believe it's Kiala. And if I'm mispronouncing that, someone please let me know. And I'll make sure in the future to say the name correctly. But based on phonetics, I'm going with Kiala. And it's a story about how Dee, who was a gifted and valuable member of his team, began to change through his experiences on different worlds and his experiences beside Kiala as they continued to work together, depend on each other, and survive. And it's that belief and dependency that allows them both to escape when one of their missions goes horribly wrong. And they find a way to make one last jump and leave it all behind. And in that moment, as they're crossing, Kiala is killed and she and Dee are separated, and Dee arrives on Earth without her, and he never sees her again. Now, just how much this has to do with Naomi, we never actually learn, because Naomi's mom arrives, yanks open the metal rolling door, and begins to slap around Dee while challenging him, and revealing to Naomi that despite whatever was discussed in previous issues, she actually does know Dee even though it appears that she told Naomi that she didn't. And her anger at Dee is so forceful that the way that she physically treats him while slapping and yelling at him feels demeaning, and it deepens this degree of pity that's already been established, or empathy that's been established for Dee over the recognition of everything that he's lost, only to then turn around and be accused of doing something that's harmful to Naomi when she's the one who came to him looking for answers that he didn't have. And there's no way that he can explain that to her angry mother. What happens next may or may not be spoilers. So if you want to jump ahead, 15, 30, 45 seconds, I understand. But it's part of the power of Naomi, because what she's doing is experiencing all the fear and terror and confusion that comes with growing up, and then she's compounding it on a galactic stage. And as Naomi and her parents ride together, and she keeps prodding for answers, there's a moment of fear when the car stops, and her mom says that only Naomi and her dad can continue on from here. 
that she'll be safe, but that it's important that she learns what's next from her dad. And what he's saying echoes so many of the sentiments that parents try to pass on to their children at that moment, right before they're going to become adults and have to face all the responsibilities that parents always want their children to be prepared for, but always hope they never have to face too early. And when he says, one day you'll have kids and you'll remember this moment, and you'll remember his words, and she'll remember that, ooh, this is what he was talking about. Echoes all the phrases I've heard said by parents when their child is facing a new challenge, like starting a new school, going to a new place to meet new people, heading out to college or on a career path or to some other world of uncertainty. And then in that moment, all they can try to do is say as many things that will be lasting and resonate in the hopes that the shock of whatever comes next will not be enough to silence them, but somehow be part of a process that either amplifies or maintains them so that they can continue and still be resonant and hopefully a reminder of the things that were and maybe even still are despite this new revelation. And for this spoiler, it's revealed that not only is there this amazing ship, but that it's owned by Naomi's father. And as he says, in such a great way, Pumpkin, that's just the beginning. Naomi does this amazing thing for a comic book where it captures the elements of the mundane world we're all forced to live in. And it makes them feel so familiar that that sense of childhood wonder and possibility for me is awoken. And I begin to think so much of this feels so real that wouldn't it be great if this happened in the real world where I live today? So many of my favorite moments when reading comics is when they made a connection to something that I knew or experienced or believed about the world. And that connection to a reality that I knew with such certainty makes a strong enough connection and this tiny kernel of possibility and hope and maybe even belief is born. I'm sure that there are elements of the mystery and the wonder that create uh, a natural curiosity that will lead me to keep reading. But what will deepen my appreciation as I do continue to read are these moments that feel so intimate, so close to Naomi and her relationships with her family and her need to define herself or at least have an understanding that can help her define herself makes these characters like Dee who could be relegated to a third, fourth string filler character simply there to provide information and it makes them that much more closer so that they feel just as intimate as Naomi and her family and just as much part of this family whose story is being shared with me in a very personal way that strips down the layers between me, the reader, and the content as the story. Be sure to read the review from Carl Bryan at DC Comics News. And if you pick up a copy and have some thoughts you'd love to share, I'd love to hear them. And that, dear listener, brings us to our fifth and final selection on the spinner rack, which is Aquaman, issue number six, as reviewed by our very own 
Cameron Tevis. This issue of Aquaman, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, features art and cover by Daniel Henriquez and Robson Rocha, and a variant cover by Esteban Moroto. This issue of Aquaman is interesting because it's so far into the series, and it's not one that I've been reading regularly, that I find myself drawn to the concept that, at his current point in the current storyline, Aquaman, Arthur Curry, doesn't even know who he is. He's going by the name Andy, and he's with a woman who is besieged. The theme of water is extremely prevalent in this issue, because while this is a story taking place on the surface, it opens with a recognition that what's happening in the deeper currents is where the larger story will eventually reveal itself and may potentially be told. In a house far away from Arthur, who's calling himself Andy, and the woman he's with is a place known as the Village of Unspoken Water. And in a small shack, a number of figures begin to arrive. And they have a story that began long before Aquaman's and has led up to this moment now. And Aquaman might be curious about this, but right now he still thinks his name is Andy. And he's watching the woman that he's been spending so much time with, who would either be known as Kale or Kaylee, as she is overtaken by a parasite who claims that this is its daughter and that this creature named Nama has come to reclaim its offspring. And when Aquaman tries to save the woman, he learns that it's actually not her that Nama wants, that instead it's the thing inside of her called the Kaiich or Kailich, and that Kylie or Kaylee has been the vessel for this creature. And that now that the parent is here and wants to take its little child, all it needs is for Kaylee Kylie to bring the Kyleech to Nama. And its purpose will be complete. Which means that the reason for keeping Kaylee Kylie around will have ended. And even though Andy doesn't know he's Arthur, he points out as he begins to fight back against Nama that even if he doesn't know who he is, he knows that he's not a child. He knows that he's a man. And he knows that he's not willing to just stand by and watch someone he cares about be taken away. And while his stance is impressive and his ability to knock Nama down and for a moment feel as though he can stand up against this thing. When the creature disintegrates into salt, merges with the water, and arises as a mythical sea dragon, there's only so much he can do before the dragon casts him off its back and heads out. And in fact, the script points out that Nama is now preparing to kill the world. And the description in the box text describes a sense of loneliness and despair that escapes from Arthur's lips. And it's in that moment that we see the iconic telepathic rings from Arthur traveling outward into the water. And from panel to panel on one page, not only do the citizens of Atlantis recognize that signal, 
but so does Mira, who believed him dead, and so do these old gods who have been gathering in the shack. And at the moment when Arthur's signal passes them, they take on their legendary forms and begin marching to issue number 47. I'm not sure if I just gave away a spoiler there without meaning to, and if I did, I take full and utter responsibility. But there's something so fluid about this story that clearly will lead to something monumental by issue number 50. And while this story could have been relegated to something like filler, it instead is part of this deeper story that's told eloquently and yet matched perfectly with this current story of a Garther standing fighting without even knowing who he really is, without even knowing that that's what he would do even if he did know who he was. And of course, for a complete review, you can read the review by Cameron Tevis at dccomicsnews.com. And we have come to the end of this first inaugural initial, soon to be followed by many more, episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. For a little bit of business, I'd like to point out that DC Comics News is now on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over and subscribe to the DCN News podcast, as well as the Spinner Rack podcast. And when you do, don't forget to rate and review. I like five stars. How about you? If you want to follow us on social media, keep up with all things DC Comics News related on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. All at DC Comics News. Again, that's at DC Comics News. I'd like to take a moment to say thank you again for joining me on this adventurous first episode of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I know I had a lot of fun, but I won't know how you felt until you let me know. So don't hold back, find one of those social media platforms, and leave us a message. Even tag us with hashtags. I promise, we won't mind. And if I can leave you with one thing, it's the always repeating message from those of us here at DC Comics News. Read more comics. Thanks for joining me. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Can't wait to see you and share with you next time.